Father God, we want to see Jesus this morning. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Give us hearts that are open to receive all the good things that you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There is one thing that good storytellers know how to do, and it is to throw in a twist at the end of their story that you never would see coming. Now, there's actually a, a literary, there's actually a name for this literary device. It's called a reversal of expectation. A reversal of expectation happens when the writer sets up a situation in a way that you would expect, only to have it turn out in a way that you would have never expected. In a sense, it reverses our expectations. Now, I'm sure I could have come up with a lot of examples, but this was the first one that came to my mind. Take, for instance, the, the famous movie, The Sixth Sense. I don't know if you've seen that movie, but it's, about, uh, it's a story of a child psychologist, played by Bruce Willis, who is tasked to help this child who's disturbed. This child sees dead people. And so this child psychologist is, is there to, to help him figure out what's going on. However, in the very end, and I'm sorry if this is a spoiler for you, however, in the end, it turns out that it's actually the child psychologist who has actually passed away, and it's the child who's helping him cope with the afterlife. It's something that you would never see coming. These reversals of expectation moments are kind of like epiphany moments. Uh, one of the effects of, of these moments is that it makes you go back and reevaluate and even reinterpret the, the entire story through the lens of this new information. You, you see the characters' interaction with other characters differently you, uh, than you did. The, you see them act differently than uh, you did the first time through. When our expectations are reversed, then we see the, we start to see the plot in a whole new light. Now Jesus was a master storyteller. I know that's no surprise to you. Many of his parables have this reversal of expectation. He uses it a lot because it's an effective method of getting our attention. All too often, we go through life not even realizing the wrong expectations that we have about ourselves, about others, and even about God. And we fail to see that our wrong expectations affect our relationships in very unhelpful ways. These moments when our expectations are reversed, they're very surprising moments. Whenever we experience a whoa, didn't see that coming type of moment, we're forced to stop and we're forced to pay attention. And when Jesus has our attention, only then can he begin to work on us and transform our expectations about life and about others and even about, about himself in ways so that we can enter more deeply into our relationships with others and with him. This morning, we're going to look at a parable in which Jesus drastically reverses our expectations. The gospel passage that we read actually just a few minutes ago comes from Matthew chapter 20. It's a story about Jesus, uh, it's a story when Jesus tells about a landowner who hires a bunch of workers to go work in his vineyard. Now for the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at a couple different characteristics of God. A couple of weeks ago, Dr. Poplin talked about God's compassion as shown in the parable of the prodigal son. Now in that sermon, Dr. Poplin made mention of this particular parable that we're going to look at today, and in fact, it just so happens to be the, the passage that fell in our lectionary. So I'm convinced that God really actually has something for us that he wants to teach us about himself through this particular parable. 
And what I'm convinced that he wants to teach us about himself is that he is a generous God. God is a God who lavishes his love and his grace and his gifts on us in ways that go far beyond our expectations. So as we begin this morning, looking at this God whose generosity goes beyond our expectations, let me invite you to turn in your scriptures to Matthew chapter 19. We're going to spend most of our time in chapter 20, but we're going to start off in Matthew chapter 19 because 19 forms the backdrop to 20. And the parable of the workers is Jesus' response to the misguided expectations we see on display that his disciples had in chapter 19. So we're just going to get a, a quick overview of chapter 19. Chapter 19 begins when the Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask him a question about marriage and divorce. Jesus answers them in a very surprising way, but if we look at the, the passage, we don't see the Pharisees' reaction to Jesus' question. What we see is the disciples' reaction to Jesus' question. And, it was, and they were very surprised at his answer. In fact, they actually say, so does that mean that, that we sh it's better if we don't marry at all? Jesus then responds to that, but the point is, is that they were surprised by his answer. He said something that they didn't expect. We then go on to verse 13 in chapter 19, and what we see is we see a bunch of people bringing their children to Jesus because they wanted Jesus to bless their children. However, we see the disciples again rebuking everybody. They're, they expected that Jesus didn't have time for this. He had more important things to do, more important people to see. And of course, Jesus then reverses their expectations when he says, no, 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 no. Let the children come to me. He then goes on to say, let them come to me because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as, such as these. It's not what the disciples expected. Well, then finally, at the end of chapter 19, we see this conversation between Jesus and a rich young ruler. This rich young man comes to Jesus asking him what he must do in order to inherit eternal life. He tells Jesus that he's kept all the commandments of the law. And Jesus then looks at him and says, well, there's one thing that you lack. Go sell all of your possessions, give the money to the poor, and then come follow me. The text tells us that that was not the answer that he was expecting from Jesus because it says he goes away sorrowful. Jesus then, and he turns, and he begins to teach his disciples. He says, he says it's more difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. Well, in verse 25, it says, and the disciples were astonished. In other words, they were surprised. That's not what they expected Jesus to say. And so as he continues to, continues to, to explain to them what he means, Peter says, oh, okay, well, I think I get this. Look at us. We've left everything. We've left everything, and we're following you. We've done everything that you told that rich young man to do. We've done it. It's the, the next part of that, of his statement that actually gets us. He says, Peter says, what then will we have? Well, Peter's statement shows that the disciples have all the same expectations that the rich young ruler has. 
If I just do all these specific things, then I will earn your favor. If I do all of these things, then I will earn my entrance into the kingdom. If I do all of these things, then I will receive great rewards. Once again, Jesus begins to show them that their expectations are all, all wrong. Now, Jesus certainly affirms that they're going to receive rewards. He says, hey, you're going to sit on thrones judging Israel. You're going to receive back a hundredfold everything you've given up. I mean, that's some pretty good rewards. But what Jesus is going to show them is that rewards are only penultimate. Are not, they're not the ultimate thing. And if we focus on the rewards, then we miss the ultimate thing. You see, Jesus wants to remind us and them that nothing that we receive in this life or in the life of the age to come is based ultimately on anything that we've done, but it's solely based on who God is. And then to illustrate that point, Jesus then begins to tell this parable in Matthew chapter 20. So if you have your scriptures, read along with me. Verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Then after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. Here at the beginning, Jesus begins to redirect our expectation of what the kingdom is like. He says it's like a landowner who goes out at the break of dawn to hire laborers for the vineyard. Picture the scene. Think of modern-day labor pools, if you will. These workers are day laborers. They aren't on staff anywhere. They don't have necessarily daily work. They're just trying to find a day's, way, a day's work for a day's wage. That's what a denarius is, is just a day's wage. But a denarius is, is at least enough to buy your daily bread and to, and to sustain your family for a day. That's all they're looking for. At this point in the story, all of Jesus' listeners would say, okay, I, this, things are proceeding along exactly like I expect. Then the landowner goes back three hours later and hires more workers. It's not necessarily an unexpected thing. The only difference is that this time the laborers aren't told what they will receive for their work, just that their pay will be fair. This happens again and again throughout the day, and then even at the 11th hour, he goes back and he hires workers. The unexpected thing begins to happen as the workers begin to receive their wages. It says the last to be hired are the first to be paid. The last will be first, the first shall be last. The workers who were there for only an hour, they received a full day's wage. That's unexpected. Same with all of the other workers. At this point, Jesus' listeners would be saying, okay, this is reversing our expectations. Then we come to verse 10. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them only received a denarius. They saw that the landowner was doing something unexpected. He was paying everyone a day's wage regardless of the amount of time that they were working. Now notice that the landowner's unexpected actions caused them to change their own expectations. However, just like the disciples with the rich man, they changed their expectations in misguided ways. Their expectations were changed on their own terms, in accordance with their own ways of thinking. They thought, hey, if, if the other workers got paid more than for what they worked for, then I guess we're going to also, aren't we? 
However, as we see in the text, that's not how it turned out. And we also see that their expectations were unfounded. When they received the agreed-upon day's wage, they were surprised and they grumbled and they complained to the landowner. Have you ever expected something from God that he never really promised that he was going to do? And then you get upset when it doesn't happen? I know I have. I know I have. So often we place these expectations on God that really aren't founded upon truth. They're founded, they aren't founded on his promises. They aren't founded on even who he is, who he's revealed himself to be. All too often we place these demands on God that are based solely on our own kind of mis- misdirected desires, what we would like God to be or to do for us. The other night, I'm sitting in my office. It was late in the day. It was right about dinner time, and one of my children, I'm not going to tell you who, one of my, one of my children comes into my office and says, hey, Daddy, can we go to the Lego store now? I looked at this child, and I said, no, no, we can't. Well, that was not the response that this child wanted to hear. After much grumbling, I finally said, where is this coming from? I never promised to to take you to the Lego store. Well, evidently, there was this promotion that was going on that that if you came to the Lego store, I guess there's a new Ninjago movie out or something, and I guess if you come to the Lego store dressed like a ninja, you could get this ninja mask. and, um, and, and, And actually, all my children really wanted this. But they came to me expecting me to take them to the Lego store. It was late in the day. We still had dinner to do and bedtime. I had never said anything. I had never heard about this. But they had this expectation that I was going to take them to the Lego store. Now, I actually did eventually take them to the Lego store on Friday, and it was a really good time. The point is, is that the expectations, at least the initial ones, weren't based on truth. They were unfounded. And we do this way too often. And when we place these, unexpe- these unfounded expectations on God, it makes us fall into spiritual despair. It makes us feel that God has failed us in some way. I've seen too many people walk away from the faith because of these unfounded expectations. Now look, I, I don't want to downplay times of doubt or, or spiritual despair, anything like that. But I just want to point out that there are times when we get upset about God over unmet expectations when there are expectations that weren't, that weren't founded on any truth. Perhaps that's where you are today. If it is, let me say this. That's not necessarily a bad place to be. Here's why. Because when we have these unmet expectations, then we might be in a place where God can actually get our attention if we're willing to listen. And if we are willing to listen, then maybe God can redirect us to the promises to his promises that are based on truth, the promises about who he is. And if we're willing to listen, then maybe we can see that the promises about God and who he is go far beyond any expectation we might put on him on our own terms. And that's exactly what happens here in the parable. Verse 13, the landowner says to these grumbling workers, he says, friends, did you not agree with me for a denarius? 
Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Now, you see, what happened there is that the workers learned something about the landowner in that moment. They learned that the landowner doesn't play by their rules. The landowner, who in this parable does represent God, acts solely based on who he is. And we see that he is generous. He's very generous. He gives the workers a generous gift, not based on their work, but simply because he chose to. Simply because he chooses to, because that's who he is. A God, God who is generous, uh, I'm sorry, God is generous and acts according with his generosity. God's understanding of generosity isn't bound by anything other than himself, and that will play itself out in unexpected ways. It's interesting that in verse 15, the landowner asks the workers, he says, do you begrudge my generosity? That's a funny question, isn't it? I mean, who would get upset over somebody's generosity? There is a word play that happens in the Greek that doesn't come out in this particular translation. It comes out in some older translations. The word for begrudged in the Greek is actually the word, actually literally translated, evil eye. Evil eye. It's a funny saying. It's not really a colloquium that, the colloquialism that we have in our language. In some older translations, it might say, do you have an evil eye because I am generous? But to a first century Jew, that would hold a lot of meaning. In Proverbs 28.22, it says this. It says, a man with an evil eye chases after wealth. In other words, a man with an evil eye is greedy, is jealous, is, uh, it gets envious. Proverbs 22.9 contrasts that and says, he who has a good eye shares his bread with the needy. The person with an evil eye is always looking to gain more stuff, more wealth. The person with a good eye is always looking to give their wealth away, to give their stuff away. A generous person doesn't get upset when others receive good gifts. In fact, they rejoice. Have you figured out who the first workers in this parable represent yet? Well, they represent the disciples, and by extension, they represent us. Jesus wants us to see ourselves in those first workers. Because what Jesus wants to do, he wants to bring his disciples and us face-to-face with God's sheer generosity. That's because God's sheer generosity both exposes us and calls us to be transformed. God's generous generosity exposes our expectations and reverses them and directs them to God's truth and God's character. Notice that the landowner in this parable intentionally specifies that the workers that the first work, I'm sorry, that the workers hired first be paid last. What he wanted them to see is he wanted to see how he paid all of the other workers. He wanted all the first work, he wanted those first workers to see his actions. He wanted them to see his generosity in action. By doing so, he then exposed places in their lives that needed to be exposed. Jealousy, enviness, 
envy, greediness. But most of all, what he exposes is their expectation that they deserve more because they worked more. He exposed the fact that they were looking through life solely based on a merit-based system. And what Jesus wanted to expose in his disciples is the same thing he wants to expose in us. Friends, there's a, friends we love to talk a, a lot about grace, do we not? We love to talk about grace. We love to hear that God is generous and he has lavished upon us things that we could never earn on our own. Yet, I think sometimes if we're honest with ourselves, we walk out of these doors and we still live life based on a merit-based system. We base our self-worth on the things that we do and the things that we have, and then we get shocked and surprised when we're never content. We measure ourselves by comparing ourselves with other people, and then we wonder why we get jealous when we see other people's people who are blessed in ways that we seemingly are not. These are unfounded expectations that we put on God. We put these unfounded expectations on God, and then we get upset when those expectations aren't realized. And it's at this point that we begin to believe that God is really different than who he really is. But here's the good thing, is that when God exposes these things in us, that's a very real grace in our life. That is a very good thing. Because by exposing wrong, even sinful expectations, God is able then to show us just how generous he actually is. You see, God has every right to leave us where we are in the expectations that we, that we have. And what we've been saying all along is that there really is nothing that we can do to merit his favor. There's no amount of work. There's no good deed. But by exposing our expectation, he, re- he, he calls us to reorient them and to be liberated from them. When we are liberated from these wrong expectations, only then can we begin to receive God's gift of grace actually as a gift actually as a real gift. The workers weren't able to receive the landowner's gifts as gifts. They couldn't see how he was actually being generous at all. All they can see was that he didn't give to them in the same way that he gave to others, or at least so they thought. Jesus tells this parable to expose the fact that the disciples failed to see God's generosity. Jesus tells the rich young ruler, sell your possessions and then come follow me. Peter says, I've done that. I've given away all my possessions, and I've come, and I follow you. But again, it's that second part of the statement that exposes Peter's expectations. What then shall we have? Peter and the disciples were still focused on what they could get from God. They were still focused on what they could get from God. They expected God to give them something. The main point of Jesus' statement is not about giving things up. The main point about Jesus' statement is about following Christ. It's about being with Christ. Look, we give, up these, we give up stuff, not in order to gain other things, but in order that they don't hinder us from being with Christ. Jesus says elsewhere that if you want to find your life, you must lose it. And so the call to give up is simply so that they won't hinder us or weigh us down from receiving the abundance of life that Jesus holds out for us. Being with Christ is the most generous gift that we could ever receive. Jesus wanted his disciples and us to not miss that. They were already with him. And Peter's asking, what more can I gain? When we are with Christ, we already have everything that there is to receive. If we focus on receiving more, then that shows that we don't really understand all that God has given us. 
Now, so far in this sermon, I have not actually even defined what generosity is, have I? Well, according to, according to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, to be generous means showing readiness to give more than is expected or necessary. Now, that's probably not an unexpected definition. But however, according to that definition, it's easy to see how the landowner was being generous to all the other workers, but it's not always immediately easy to see how he was being generous to the first workers. Well, here's where the reversal of expectation comes. It's easy to read this parable and to focus solely on what was given, to focus on the gifts. But the point of the parable is not the gifts at all. The point of the parable is not what they receive at all. The point of the parable is the giver. That is the point of the parable, is who the giver is. Now, trust me, we miss this fact all the time. We do it, the disciples did it. And if there's any hint of seeming unfairness when we read this passage, to any seeming unfairness to those first workers, then it means that we too easily get focused on the gifts and not on the giver. And the parable is a call to look at the giver. Do you know why those workers were hired in the first place? Well, so often in, in sermons, and believe me, I listen to a lot in preparation, and so in sermons and in commentaries, they make this blanket assumption that, oh, well, the workers were hired because it was harvest season. Now, it's true that in harvest season, you need a lot of workers because you got to harvest in a short amount of time. However, a very careful reading of the text doesn't actually tell us why they were hired. It doesn't say they were hired because of harvest season. All we are told is something about the landowner himself. All we're told is that he chooses to pay everybody the same and that he's generous. What else do we know about God as we think about that? Well, we know that God doesn't need us. We know that God is self-sufficient in and of himself, that he does not need us. Jesus said, if my people fail to, to praise me, the stones will cry out. We know that God didn't create us out of any sense of lack or need. He created us solely because he's a creator. That's just what he does. That's who he is. We also know that God is a gatherer. A few weeks ago, we looked at the passage in Isaiah chapter 56, particularly verse 8, that tells us specifically that God is a type of God who gathers. That what he does by nature is he goes out and he finds those on the outside and brings them in. That's who he is. That's what he does. It even says in Ephesians chapter 2 that who, what he does by nature is, is he takes enemies and strangers and aliens and brings them in and makes them children. God is a God who gathers. That's simply what he does because that's who he is. So at the risk of applying my own assumption to this text, let me ask this question. What if the point of this parable is not that the landowner needed the workers? What if the point of the parable is that the landowners, the landowner hired the workers for no other reason than that's just simply who he is and what he does. This is a landowner who continually goes out and finds more and more and more, and we're not told that he actually needs them. It's just who he is and what he does. And I think the context gives credence to that because of the things that we know about 
God. So I want to suggest to you that the landowner's call to the workers to come into the, in the landowner's vineyard, to be where the landowner is, that itself was the generous gift of grace. I think the workers missed it, and I think the disciples miss it. And too often we miss it in our own lives. We know that God's initial call is by grace, but often we want to believe that we have to continue in that call by some kind of work. That God calls us by grace, but then we feel like sometimes, well, if I'm going to continue in this grace, then I'm, I've got to perform well, and I've got to do all the right things. Now, true, there's a call to faithfulness, yes, but the point is, like, look, if we have begun in grace, it doesn't make sense that we would continue in works. God's call and the rewards are all based on grace. Look, the day laborers, they show up to this labor pool hoping to find work so that they can provide for their families. The thing about day laborers that they know, they expect to find work, but it's not guaranteed. They have a hope that it's there, but it's not guaranteed. Verse 6, the landowner goes back and he finds workers standing around all day. And he asked them why. They say, because nobody has hired us. Now, it would be easy to read into the text an assumption of why they're standing around all day, but again, the text doesn't tell us. All the text tells us is that nobody has hired them. And so, of course, the landowner, being who he is, says, go into my vineyard. Vineyards are symbols of abundance. Whenever we see vineyards all throughout scriptures, it is a symbol of abundance. These workers did not have access to the abundance of that vineyard until the original call came. Later in Matthew, we'll see another parable where you have a host that throws a party. The host, again, is a representation of God. He throws a party, and what does he do? He tells his servants to go out to the highways and the byways and to gather in all the people who did not have access to this party and bring them in and give them access to this feast. That's who God is. That's what he does. That's a generosity is he, he lavishly gives to those on the outside things that they would, have never get, they would have never received apart from the call of God. The most gracious invitation that Jesus ever gives us when he says, come, follow me. The point of the parable is not what you gain when you come and follow Jesus. It's who you gain. We gain access to the Father. We get to be part of this abundance in the vineyard. We get to be there with him, and it's solely based on his generous call. In closing, let me say this. Be careful that we don't read the first line of this parable in the wrong way. It does not say, the kingdom of heaven is like workers who get paid. It's not what it says. The parable says, the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner. And that's the whole point of the parable that he is a generous giver. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.